2 Thessalonians 2, verses 1 and 2. Whoa, I'm in Psalms. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And we're going to stop there for this week and pray. Lord, thank you once again for a chance now to open your word and for us as a body to receive instruction from this passage. We believe that, like always, Lord, um, specific texts from you are um, designed to be fitting for our specific situation. So, um, We believe, Lord, that by your spirit you intend to guide Christ fellowship through these two verses. And therefore, Lord, we look forward to hearing from you now. In Jesus' name, amen. Two verses this morning. Last week, our text was a prayer from Paul to God on behalf of the Thessalonians. It was a prayer, or as we kind of clarified, it was um, Paul informing the Thessalonians what he prayed for them when he prayed for them. Nevertheless, it was a prayer. This week, our text is still a prayer, technically. It's a prayer from Paul directly to the Thessalonians themselves, and I think you understand the difference in the way that I'm using those words. Um, The first, last week, was an intercession. It was Paul standing before God on behalf of the Thessalonians, praying that God would do in them what they were totally incapable of doing in themselves. And just a rehearsal of the three aspects to Paul's prayer last week reveals that. He prayed, God, make them worthy of your calling. He prayed, God, fulfill every resolve for good, and God, fulfill every work of faith. And a number of times he clarified um, that this was by God's power, he says, and according to his grace. This prayer, though, is more simply by definition what a prayer is. It's a request. It's a plea, which is why you shouldn't be alarmed or threatened by my using the word prayer to refer to what Paul asks here of the Thessalonians themselves. Unlike the prayer to God by Paul on behalf of the Thessalonians that ended chapter 1, Paul's request of the Thessalonians themselves here at the beginning of chapter 2, they're not for things that the Thessalonians were incapable of or accountable for in and of themselves. That was the nature of his requests to God last week. This week, though, he's absolutely appealing to the Thessalonian church directly because of what he asks them is something that they were responsible for, accountable for,
for and something that they absolutely must do in order to persevere. And you can see the carryover from chapter 1 in the way he prefaces his requests of them. The, the carryover is entirely verse 1. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask, we ask you, brothers. So he's clearly, he's still thinking about Jesus' return. He's still thinking about Jesus' repayment of vengeance and banishment to the unrighteous, rest and glory to the righteous. He's still thinking about here, even going back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he's thinking about the church corporately being gathered together and united to its head, Jesus. He's thinking about the church as a bride being joined to her husband, Clearly in Paul's language in verse 1, that not having happened yet. But clearly as well, here in our passage, his requests revealing there was some confusion among the Thessalonians about the nature and the timing of Jesus' second coming and all the events surrounding it. And yet the appeal of the passage isn't because it reveals anything unknown about the nature or the timing of Jesus' second coming because the passage doesn't reveal something mysterious or unknown about the nature or the timing of Jesus' second coming. The the appeal of the passage, however, is because Paul, in this passage, goes after what seems to me, just as I get to know myself better, And as I continue to observe and interact with other people, this text appeals strongly to me because Paul goes after something in me and in you that I want him to go after in me and in you. Something that I need him, we need him to go after in us. Because in Paul coming after us in this area, in God's inspired, authoritative word, it is God himself by his spirit graciously coming after us and pursuing us in this particular area where we desperately need him to come after us and pursue us. So what is the issue? What's the area? What's he coming after in us that is being threatened somehow. What is Paul, what is God through Paul seeking to claim and preserve for God that is being wrestled from us to be claimed against God and his gospel? The answer is in verse 2. Stated Broadly, in our passage, God, through Paul, is coming after our minds. Stated as specifically as Paul states it here, he's coming after the stability or the sobriety of our minds. Stated most in harmony with what he said thus far in both 1st and 2nd Thessalonians up to this point. He's hoping and he's seeking for our minds 
in real space and time what he hopes and dreams Christ will declare for us at the end of time. Which, again, just stepping back a few verses, but never stepping out of the context, is rest and glory. He's seeking for us by this plea minds that are at rest. Restful in a way that is reflective of entering into the first glimpses of the rest of Jesus. And restful in a way that prefaces or foreshadows the full expression of rest, which we will fully enter into at Christ's second coming. Let me read again verses 1 and 2 this way for your benefit, because this, this is what he's saying. Here we go. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him, we ask you, brothers, that you not be quickly shaken from a settled state of mind. He's seeking settled minds to preserve, to restore, if need be, Minds that are at rest, minds that are at peace, minds that are settled with God through Christ. And the fact that his requests along these lines are both stated negatively, in other words, he's saying, don't be quickly shaken, don't be alarmed. The implication is being shaken or alarmed will unsettle your mind or disquiet your minds. Meaning, their minds, and by application, our minds, are to a degree already at rest or at peace or settled in Christ because that happens at salvation. Christ restores minds. Anxious, restless, unsettled minds. He brings them to a settled rest through the gospel. And yet Paul can preach or write to the Thessalonians to not let themselves be shaken from a settled mind, which they've already entered into through Christ, because he elsewhere commands the church to renew their minds. Day after day after day. So let me remind you of those very familiar verses in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So two really basic ideas to take forward with us are one. Christ restores broken Restless, anxious, unsettled minds in redemption. 
Two, you have a responsibility by the power of the Spirit to maintain what Christ has restored. In other words, you and I are not guaranteed here or anywhere that we can effortlessly in life maintain or remain mentally stable or sober or restful or faithful. And the key word in that sentence is effortlessly. So why might that be? And among the many possible answers there stands out in our text the reality that there are people who are either confused themselves or who know exactly what they're doing who are trying to deceive you. Trying, as we said before, according to our text, to shake you from a settled state of mind or to create also in accordance with Paul's words here to create an alarmed panic in you that is verse 2 and the way it was happening to the Thessalonians then may be different from the way that it happens to us today but that really isn't the point so Paul says here there were actually people in his day either penning letters, he said either by spirit or by letter or by word as from us. So there were people in his day actually penning letters in his or the other apostles' names or speaking in their names or insisting in private or in public upon a specific intention or meaning in the words they heard the apostles themselves speak. And getting away with That might be more difficult in our day, but we have our own set of attempts by those who are legitimately deceivers to shake our minds. The point really isn't in the specific way in which deceivers attempt to deceive, nor is it necessarily in the specific issue by which they sought to deceive then. Here in verse 2, the issue is identified. And it seems to be what caused so much confusion in this church in both letters, and that surrounded the nature and the coming of Christ, the second coming. But the point isn't even to identify this as the one issue we have to watch out for today, although admittingly, it has been a pretty big one all throughout church history. An unsettled anxiety, a, a panic, over details. And it's, it's really not even the only place in the New Testament where false claims were being made about Christ's coming in the day of the Lord. So just listen to a, a lot of verses coming up. So I want to show you that this, this was a major issue then. It's a major issue today. In 2 Timothy 2, these warnings were given to Timothy by Paul to pass down to the church, which was being assaulted by similar things. And Paul says this, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth 
saying that the resurrection has already happened and they are upsetting the faith of some. The nature of the deception that Paul is going after in both churches, in both letters, is the lie that Christ's coming and the resurrection have already passed. And while that may sound silly to you, silly to us, just withhold judgment for a minute because in both letters it wasn't a silly thing to them. Because in 2 Thessalonians, Paul implies that some of God's people were being shaken and alarmed in their minds over this. In 2 Timothy, Paul reveals that this lie had caused some in the church to fall away, he says. To just give up. Because if the lie is true, whether Jesus has returned physically already and raised the dead physically already and somehow they missed it, or whether, as was also a claim, whether the nature of the second coming and the resurrection of the dead was argued to have happened in a spiritual way. From both angles, it removed any hope in them of a future physical return of Christ and resurrection from the dead. And if that hope is removed from you, what do you have to hope in? I found a couple of other passages that reveal this widespread teaching as well. And I, I personally didn't find them. I was pointed to them again by somebody I mentioned quite a bit, uh, G.K. Beale, in his commentary. So I want to borrow them from him and at least read them so that we might better get a better grasp at what they were dealing with and why it was so devastating. Just listen to some of these passages because they're, they're written by apostles to real people in real churches who, again, were being unsettled in their minds, losing hope, becoming alarmed or panicked, and in so doing being drawn away, in Paul's words, from the faith of the gospel. So Second, second Peter, chapter 3 and verse 3, listen to this. Peter says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. So we're warned about this. Following their own sinful desires, he assigns the motive. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of the creation. So there the charge wasn't even that it happened already, whether physical or spiritual. The charge was in the form of a scoff, making the idea of the second coming of, and of faith in the second coming look silly. I want, I want to come back, I'm going to come back after I read a number of these passages. I'm going to come back afterwards to see how Paul or Peter or John advised their readers in these passages because it's the same actually in our text this morning. 
So let's, let's go to another one. There's 2 Peter 3, in the form of a scoff, making the idea of a physical, literal second coming of Jesus look silly, and anybody who believes in it just look ridiculous and silly. In John, however, John 21, there is revealed that there was even some confusion among Jesus' 12 disciples concerning what he himself said about this. So listen to John 21, verses 22 and 23. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? The point to take away there is that if Jesus' own disciples could misunderstand his own words when he was right there in front of them, speaking to them about the resurrection and about his return, there is this natural, it seems, uncertainty or vulnerability in relation to the details of these events and their timings that it appears in the churches of the New Testament that deceivers are capitalizing on. Probably the most well-known is 1 Corinthians 15. Here's the verse, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? That's probably all I need to cite here to help us grasp the controversy about the details of the second coming and the resurrection. The, the seriousness of the issue is made obvious by Paul in 1 Corinthians 12. 15, rather. He says, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. That is what is at stake. So why is the faith of people in Ephesus being overthrown by lies about this issue? Why is Paul so concerned about the minds of his Thessalonian brothers and sisters, the state of their minds as it relates to 
information, details concerning the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, the resurrection of the dead, because Paul understands what's at stake. And he's not dismissing any of the efforts to overthrow his brothers or his sisters' faith or unsettle their minds or create an alarmed panic in them about this. Yet, where our passage goes, yet, Paul's way of dealing with this problem isn't to go after the deceivers directly other than to follow through with church order as he's detailed it in the pastoral epistles and exclude them or dismiss them from among them if they didn't repent of their false teaching. His way of addressing this here, though, is to come after God's people specifically to charge them, as he does three times in our text, not to be shaken in mind, not become alarmed. And in verse 3, specifically a command, let no one deceive you in any way. So he comes after us to resist and reject and persevere in the truth that has been handed down to us in the word. That is the greater of this passage. Unsettled, anxious minds claimed by Christ, brought to rest, now disrupted, confused, unsettled by the relentless assaults against them who are now being called back, not to Paul, not to Peter, not to John, but to God and his word and to Christ and his cross and to the spirit and his power. And in the coming weeks, we will see in our text how Paul does this in 2 Thessalonians. But I want us now to listen to how he does this in the passages we've already read from other letters of the New Testament. So, we already read in 2 Peter, the threat. It was a scoff that made belief in a second coming and a resurrection look just silly or juvenile. So here's Peter's advice to his readers. How, how are they supposed to sort and settle and resist and reject? He brings them back to what they know from the word. He calls them to reaffirm their faith in what God has revealed in his word. And he comes after them like Romans 12 does to align their lives in faith based upon God's promises. So listen to Peter's words. Speaking of the same scoffing people. He says, for they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved 
that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness. They're saying all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Peter's simply saying they count time differently than God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise promise as some count slowness, but it's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. Some are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. Implying that not even Christ was raised from the dead. So how does Paul answer them and address his readers? He unapologetically affirms his faith in what God has revealed in Christ about the future. And he calls his readers in a very in-your-face way, as we'll see, to dismiss the deceivers from their company and to do more to spread the true gospel than to be deceived by a false one. Listen to how in-your-face he gets to these people who granted were being assaulted. But I think whom Paul is saying knew better. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For... God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead if the dead are not raised at all? Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? He says, I protest 
brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. So what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, he says, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So here's his charge to them. Based upon all those things he's calling to affirm about what they know from what God has revealed, here's his charge. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. And here's his closing words. I say this to your shame. So Jesus ransoms, restores, redeems sinners. He heals broken Unsettled, restless, anxious minds and reveals truth that contains hope for the future for us to hold on to in order to remain settled and stable and at rest and peace. But everywhere we look, there are lies and deceptions and liars and deceivers who think your belief in a resurrection is absurd or ridiculous. Your eager waiting for the return of Jesus in the clouds to be silly or juvenile or childish. Where there are others who contrive all kinds of crafty ways to deny what you believe, which is still an assault on your faith and an effort to unsettle your settled minds. And if we put some passages together, we know that if these people do not repent, that vengeance and banishment will be repaid them. But the apostles' words in our text are directed toward you, toward us, to wake up, resist, reject, affirm what we know to be true from Scripture, and to be busy spreading the true Gospel, rather than being idle and vulnerable to being deceived by a false gospel. There is clearly in Paul's words no sympathy or excuse for yielding to what is false and every reason in the power of the Spirit to persevere in what is true. So here are a few thoughts to just wrap it up. This morning. First and foremost, a settled mind is a mind that has been claimed by Christ. Redeemed, bought, rescued from anxious, restless confusion, and brought to peace in and with God in Christ. So if you are anxious about your standing with God, perhaps the Spirit is calling you to believe in Jesus as your rescuer and redeemer so that you might taste the rest that he purchased in his death and secured in his resurrection and promises to give us to the fullest degree for all of eternity. Second, 
A settled, restful mind in Christ is not an idle, lazy, vulnerable mind. It is a mind not open to skepticism or debate over what the Bible declares to be true and calls us to daily affirm. A settled, restful mind is a mind that's being renewed day by day by day by the power of the Spirit through the disciplines of reading the Word, praying, responding in faith to what you see and hear from the Word. So if those disciplines are not non-negotiable daily routines in your life, You are opening your idle self to lies and deceptions that will inevitably unsettle you and potentially overthrow your faith because you don't know the word that is given to ground your faith. Third, a sober, stable mind is a mind that is fixed on Jesus. And I only clarify that because Jesus is who the word is about and reveals and who came and died and rose and redeems and reigns and is returning. And what was happening in Thessalonica or Ephesus or Corinth or among the exiles that Peter writes to serves as a warning to us to not become distracted from Jesus by issues. To not stake our hope or joy or stability or rest on anyone or anything other than the person and work of Jesus. So in conclusion, Christ fellowship stake everything on jesus rest in what he has accomplished and revealed and promised be disciplined to read and rehearse and pray and reaffirm what you know to be true in his word and be more busy about proclaiming the gospel than you know that you know than engaging in pointless debates generated by those who don't know the gospel and knowingly or unknowingly invest more energy to remove you from the safety of the gospel than you or I often do to bring them into the safety of the gospel. And with Paul to the Corinthians, I speak this to our shame. Yet because God is kind and merciful and powerful, I speak this also with hope. That shame will be overcome by freedom and proclamation and salvation and along with it the settling of more restless, anxious, weary, confused, hopeless minds for the glory of our God in Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father, we give you thanks for writing to us through Paul about your concern about the state of our minds.
Whether or not today, right now, we are affirming what we know to be true based upon what you have revealed, or whether we've become idle, lazy, open, vulnerable to lies and deceptions designed in your word to unsettle your people, even overthrow them. My prayer, Lord, is that by your grace, by the power of the Spirit, that the members of Christ's fellowship would be faithful in the disciplines of reading the word, meditating upon the word, praying based upon what we read in the word, affirming day by day by day for the renewal of our minds the truth that you have revealed. Lord, may Christ fellowship be a word-saturated church. Settled, restful, and busy, Lord, about proclaiming the gospel that is non-negotiable among us with the hope that you might bring others into the safety of it through us. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.